How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now let's get started. Welcome back. Today, we are starting with our initiative for 2023, which is covering significant passages in the Bible and how they relate to life's key three, learn yourself, love God, and live connected. I believe all of life, a life well-lived, can be summarized in those three endeavors. If you listen to the four-part series on the core compass of truth, and if you haven't, I encourage you to go back and do that. You know that I believe that we can find truth in four areas. Common sense, which is God's universal grace, so we just stay alive. Number two is creation. And I don't just mean geological layers of dinosaur bones, but things that even relate to the consistent boiling point of water. Number three, other people. And that doesn't just mean other Christians. Because God is generous with his knowledge and wisdom that he instills in people. And number four, the Bible or scripture. And just like we have four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, that we navigate by, so these are the four cardinal directions that we can navigate by in in alignment with truth. Out of all four of those, there's only one that remains fixed. And just like Polaris, the North Star remains the constant in our solar system. So the Bible remains the constant fixed truth that everything else needs to align by. And if any of those other areas, other people, creation, common sense, contradict scripture, then we've got to look and see what's wrong with those directions because they're off, not the Bible. Each week, because yes, we're going weekly, we're going to dig into a passage of scripture. And then if you sign up for Highlights, my weekly newsletter, you're going to get three additional days of reading assignments for yourself and your family, where I'm going to share some of my insights as a way to just come alongside and help guide you through some reading. So between the newsletter and this podcast, you're going to have four days of Bible study for you and your family. In the Highlights newsletter, you will have references to some readings in children's Bibles and insights that you can share and discussion questions that you can also use so that this doesn't just become a podcast for you. It becomes the Bible study system for you and your entire family. Okay, so let's dive in. Where are we going to begin? You might think Genesis and you would be wrong. You might think Matthew and you would be wrong. We're going to begin with a book that isn't commonly said, hey, if you want to start reading the Bible, here's where you're going to go. But let me tell you about this book. Modern movies and novels have nothing on this book. There are plot lines and protagonists and antagonists and divine intervention and scandal and corruption and war and redemption and romance. It is all here. So where are we starting? First, Samuel. Today and this week, we're going to look at the first four chapters of Samuel. Today, we're just going to focus on chapter one, and then I'll share insights on chapters two, three, and four in the Highlights newsletter. 
these four chapters begin with infertility issues and end with not one, but two births to different women. The first woman is Hannah. She is one of the Bible's most well-known women, and we like Hannah's story because it seems to wrap up so nicely. But it is so easy to gloss over this story. The basic setting is this. Hannah is married to Elkanah, and she is barren. She has struggled with infertility and has no children, and it is devastating to her. And women weren't just already second-class citizens in society. The fact that she was barren and didn't have any children made her even in a lower class, not just amongst men, but even among women. And it wasn't just women out there. You see, her husband had a second wife. Yes, there's polygamy in the Bible. It's never stamped with God's approval in the Bible. But that's one of the things that's great about the Bible. It includes the good, bad, and ugly, even of its so-called heroes. And so this man has a second wife. We don't know which wife came first. Was it just Elkanah and Hannah for a while? And then eventually when she didn't have children, did he decide, well, heck, I got to have kids. And so I'm going to go find another wife. We don't know that. But we do know that the other wife had no compassion or kindness for Hannah. Hannah doesn't have an inner circle who empathizes with her. She doesn't come home every day, so to speak, and have this safe place emotionally because here's her husband's other wife and her kids, and she's watching this other woman who treats her with such disrespect, and she's watching her husband with this other woman and with these kids, and she's watching everything happen around her that she so desperately wants for herself and cannot make happen for herself. Ever had that experience? Bitterness would have been the easy way for her to go. Although her husband has these two wives, the Bible does tell us that he loves Hannah more. And while that may be true, he really does not enter into her pain. Instead, he tries to talk her out of it. In one verse, it records where he says to her, okay, get this. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Can we just camp out on this for a minute? Do we really think that Elkanah had no clue why his wife was sad and crying and not eating? Was he so in the dark that he was just asking this question out of sheer ignorance and and he was just really totally clueless? I find that kind of hard to believe, especially because he asks the question, am I not more to you than 10 sons? What's fascinating to me is the Bible does not record Hannah's answer. You see, what he is saying to her is, Am I not such a great husband to you that I make up for the pain that you experience because you have no children? That pretty much clues us in that he knows that she is sad and weeping and has lost her appetite because of the pain of infertility. We have no way of knowing how Hannah responded to that question. Did she give him the look, the I can't believe you just asked me that look. 
Did she throw a plate at him? Did she walk away and go cry quietly someplace by herself? Did she get mad and cuss him out? Did she say to him, Elkanah, how many times have we been through this? I love you. I appreciate you. Yes, you are a good husband. No, you are not more meaningful to me than if I had 10 sons because I am your wife. I am not your mother. It is impossible for me to experience life as a mother when I don't have any children. And the love that I have and want to cherish and give to a child is different than the love I have for you as a wife. Could you please not make this all about you again? We don't have a clue as to what Hannah's response was. There are some pretty powerful lessons in here because this guy is not willing to enter in and to just sit with his wife's pain. He makes it all about himself. He just wants her to say, Oh, yes, Elkanah, you are such a fabulous husband. Oh, you know why? I don't need to be sitting here crying. Gosh, pass me more potatoes. Let's dig in. I need to just get out of myself and get on so we can have a wonderful time. Raw, raw, raw. Oh, I am so sorry that my pain is causing you any distress. Let me just take my pain and stick it under the table because clearly, My job is just to come along and make you feel so good. We don't know a whole lot about Elkanah, either from this passage or from other passages. So we don't know if this guy was just a total selfish jerk and he routinely tried to act clueless and make it all about him so that he didn't have to be present for his wife emotionally. After all, He's got kids. He's experiencing parenthood. We also don't know if he just doesn't know how to handle her pain. And so he just says something out of his own sense of inadequacy that's just not helpful because he thinks it's better to say something kind of stupid than to just not say anything at all. At the very least, it seems he needed the five love languages books and maybe he needed some pretty intensive counseling. What we do know is Hannah is left without a husband who, at least in this situation, doesn't show up for her with kindness and compassion and his focus on how he can help her. While there are powerful lessons in this story about how husbands treat their wives when they're hurting. I want us to expand the significance of this beyond just men and women and husbands and wives. I want us to ask ourselves, when we have people in our lives who deal with chronic pain, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, are we like Elkanah? Do we show up and ask questions posing as if we are naive and have no idea of the chronic pain that they deal with? Do we say things or ask questions that turn the focus to make it about ourselves and looking for their affirmation 
Are we so uncomfortable with chronic pain that we'd rather just say something stupid than just say, I don't know why this is happening or has happened to you, and I am so sorry. Here, let me pray for you or with you. Elkanah could not solve Hannah's problem. Hannah couldn't solve her problem. This was not a person who was in chronic pain because she was deliberately staying there as a way to get attention or not move forward or take responsibility for her life or just kept making bad decisions that kept her in a painful place. This was someone who hadn't caused her pain and couldn't do anything to end it. So while there's certainly lessons here for husbands and wives, there's also the bigger lesson for all of us about how we deal with people whose pain goes on for a very long time that we don't have an answer for and we don't have any way to solve. Now, this is where we would love to read the story and hear that, oh, she goes to God, there's an angel that comes and talks to her and everything works out. That isn't what happened because you know what she does encounter? She encounters another arrogant man, Eli, the priest. See, they've gone up to Shiloh and this is the place where People came to worship at that time. And she's there praying. She's pouring her heart out to God. She's not running around telling everybody else about her jerk sister wife. And she's not running around telling everybody else how emotionally removed and illiterate her husband is. Instead, she is pouring out her heart to God. And Eli the priest interjects himself into the situation and he makes a snap judgment. He doesn't ask her what's going on. He doesn't inquire. He assumes. Let me just point out, assumptions almost always lead to difficulty or disaster. And out of that assumption comes what usually follows assumptions and it's an accusation. He accuses her of being a drunk. So here's Hannah. She's been dealing with the incredible pain of infertility for a long time. And with that often came a judgment that there was something inherently wrong and sinful with her. And that's why God was not allowing her to have children. Her husband's got another wife who taunts her and treats her with contempt. Her husband, although he loves her and shows that by giving her a double amount of the food when they go up for the special occasion, doesn't enter into her pain. Instead, he loads onto it by asking her this ridiculous question, you know, am I not worth more to you than 10 cents? And now, on top of all of that, she's got Eli, the priest, who stood in the position of representing God, accusing her of being a drunk. Couldn't we really blame Hannah at this point if she went off on a tear and told Eli or her husband or her husband's other wife off? Now, I'm not saying she would be right, but just for me, I am too much aware of my own human tendencies to know I could totally see making that decision. But that's not what she decides. Instead of responding to Eli's accusation with defensiveness, she responds with her integrity. She does stand up for herself. She corrects Eli. She addresses the wrong assumption and accusation with grace and respect. 
she doesn't just take it lying down. She doesn't just get all angry and say, you're an idiot. She doesn't also just slink off feeling ashamed by his accusation. She does stand up for herself. She does correct the assumption that he's made about her, but she does it with grace and respect. And when she does this, Eli responds by saying, go in peace. And may God grant you what you are asking of him. And in time, that's what happens. She conceives and gives birth to a son. And that's where we would like to think the story just all wraps up so neatly, so beautiful. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I want you to understand this. Even when God grants her request, there is still pain. Because essentially what Hannah had said when she was pleading to God, she makes a vow and says, God, if you will give me what I'm asking of you, please just let me have a child. Please just let me have one child. She says, I will give him back to you. Now, that doesn't just mean I will raise him to know you and love you. What she was essentially saying, I will give birth to him and I will give him up for adoption. Let that soak in. This woman has lived with tremendous pain for we don't know how long, but a long period of time and the pain of infertility. She doesn't ask God for 10 kids and say, hey, if you give me 10 kids, I'll give one back to you. She says, if you'll just give me one child, I will give him up for adoption. And that's essentially what she does. We are told that when Samuel was weaned, she takes him to the temple and she leaves him there in the care of Eli. Now, we don't know the exact age. Children did tend to be weaned at a much later age than, than we do that now, at least here in the States. And I don't know if he was three. That could have been a common age at which children were weaned. I think it's interesting that there's a mention of a three-year-old bull that's brought to be sacrificed when they finally take Samuel back and leave him with Eli. But I don't know if there's any significance to the age of the bull or not. We do know that we are specifically told, and the child was young. And here's what I want to point out. Just because God gives us what we ask for doesn't mean there will be no pain or suffering or sorrow attached to it. If you're a parent, it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when your heart's going to be broken. And that isn't just because your child is going to rebel and go off into some sin as the prodigal son, for example. It's because you will never be able to protect your child enough from experiencing their own brokenness, other people's brokenness, or the brokenness of this world in which we live. We later learned that Hannah did have other children, but that didn't mean that giving Samuel up at a very young age to be raised by someone else, and in all likelihood, she only got to see once a year, somehow made it easy for her. This was a woman of incredible courage. And we want to give her the honor that she's due because she was committed to following God, even though she had plenty of reason to give up and to walk away from him, to grow bitter in her heart. We also do not want to gloss over all of the aspects of her story and say, oh, 
That's how it works out for people who follow God. Everything gets wrapped up and there's no more sorrow or sadness. We will never end sorrow and sadness as long as we are on this planet. And I hate to tell you that, but that's truth. But we have something as a believer to look forward to because the Bible also tells us that the day will come when he will wipe away all the tears from our eyes and there will be no more sorrow or sadness or death or despair because all of that is going to be wiped away. When we choose the second of life's key three to love God, it's not going to turn our life into a happily ever after story on this earth. Eventually, it'll be a happily ever after story, but not in the here and now. So maybe you're in a situation where you are surrounded by people who are not cheering for you, or even if they love you, are not showing up for you in the way that they should. And you may even have other people, including Christians, who make judgments about you based on outward assumptions and not based on really knowing you that lead to false accusations. But what you can do is to model Hannah. You choose to respond, not with defensiveness, but with your integrity intact. You can stand up for yourself. You can correct false assumptions, but you can do it with grace and dignity and respect and be willing even for the things that God brings to you to give them back and entrust them to God. That's going to wrap up for us our introduction to 1 Samuel chapter 1. In highlights, you're going to have some insights for chapters 2, 3, and 4, and we will be back next episode starting with chapter 5. So if you haven't already, hop on over to the website, stephaniepresents.com, sign up for highlights, Make sure to hit the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Share it with somebody else, especially somebody who has a family and they want to have a strategic system in place that's workable to be able to lead their family in Bible study this year. And remember, my friend, you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.